0: So you've got an original idea for an original story that isn't part of a franchise, and you want to get people interested in it. So you're probably going to rely on tropes or mythology or some kind of nostalgia to get people initially interested. And that can be a good thing, but it's not enough to carry people all the way through. You see, tropes, nostalgia, and mythology are placebos for connection. And that magic wears off. So let's talk about that on today's episode of Project Shadow. you me? I have something to say. Hello everyone, how are you doing today? My name is Charlie, you might know me better as sci-fi fantasy romance writer, C.E. Dorset. And yeah, today we're going to talk about gimmicks. Because they are gimmicks. Yeah, nostalgia, various tropes, even mythology is a gimmick. But before we get into all that, if you haven't already, please do take a moment to rate this podcast in whatever app you're listening to me on, it does really help. It tells the algorithms to share the podcast with more people. And the more people that listen, the bigger the community. The bigger the community, the better the chance we have of actually communicating with each other. And after all, that's why I do this in the first place. So thank you to everybody who's already done that. Alrighty. So, yeah, it's hard to get people to care about what you're doing. Especially if it's not part of something that they already care about. It's not that difficult for, say, Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel... Even the DC properties to get you moderately interested. Because, well, you probably have some interest around there already. You liked a Batman movie or a Superman movie or a Star Wars movie or a Star Trek series at some point in your life. So, it's not that surprising that people want to build franchises. Because once you're invested, you're invested. And so when I say, oh, there's a new this or a new that. For goodness sakes, I don't think Dune can be turned into a movie at all, and I think it's a failed effort from the start to even try. But you know, they announced that there's going to be a new Dune movie, and yeah, I'm I'm probably going to watch it, because I love those books. I I think it's not going to work. I think it might be okay, but it's not going to capture everything that's in those books, because... Well, the story of Paul Atreides is so complicated and so complex and deals so much with small, intimate, quiet moments that you can't really do that on film. So I don't think it's translatable, but I'm still going to watch because nostalgia is a thing. And you might think to yourself, well, Charlie, I don't have access to a franchise or to the copyrights of others, so how I I couldn't do that even if I wanted to. Well, that's not true. When I wrote The Chain, one of the nostalgia properties that I pulled on for that was to say quite boldly, it's a postmodern retelling of the story of Cupid and Psyche. Which it is. So if you're interested in that story, which you've probably heard at some point, then that's a cheap way to get you interested. It's a nostalgia call. Oh, I like that Greek myth. Yeah, maybe I should check that out. And you see this all the time, The Lightning Thief. And most of Rick Riordan's books, the initial catch is, Oh, yeah, I like Greek mythology. Or, I like this mythology. Hmm, I'm curious about that. And we see this all the time. Mythologies and retellings are the easiest way for a writer to get into some kind of a nostalgic place. Why did you listen to and or read Wicked for the first time? Probably because you thought to yourself, huh, I I like The Wizard of Oz. Wow, this is a retelling of that? Ooh, I'm curious to see how that works. And so you got into it. Disney has made an entire empire out of doing this. Oh, I've heard of Snow White. I've heard of Cinderella. I've heard the story of Aladdin. I've heard the story of Mulan. I've heard the story of the princess and the frog. I've heard of all of these things. That, that's interesting. I, I'm in. I'm in. Let's see what you do with it. And then after they've created their properties, they've come back around and gone, Gone. remember how much you liked our Cinderella? Here's a new version of our own Cinderella. Here's a new version of Our Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, they keep doing that because it works. If you already know that you like something, then the chance of something that is a retelling of that story has a higher likelihood of you liking it. It's cheap, but it works. Nostalgia works in another way. Saying that your story takes place in the 80s or the 90s can bring up nostalgic feelings. Stranger Things is a master of this. They tell us, Hey, here's a show that's going to take place in the 80s. And then start (coughs) beating us over the head with nostalgic imagery. Oh, remember D&D? They're going to play D&D. You like D&D, right? Oh, you like the Ghostbusters? Do you remember the Ghostbusters? They're going to do Ghostbusters cosplay in a way that no one realistically would have been able to do in the 1980s. Because I was a kid in the 1980s and... Costumes were horrible. They were just horrible. But it's a wonderful dream fantasy, and wouldn't it have been great if you and your friends could have dressed up like the Ghostbusters, complete with the packs and everything, and gone into school? Nostalgia! You get this with the music that plays. Oh, I love that music. I love that song. Guardians of the Galaxy plays off this a lot. And unfortunately, a lot of the people over at Warner Brothers thought that that was the only thing that People got out of it was, oh, I really like that musical cue, so I'm going to pay billions of dollars for this franchise. And no, that, that's not what it was. it was. It was just part of the appeal. And it was a way to hook us into the character. And see, that's why it worked. You see, Peter Quill's obsession with classic rock meant something. It was his only connection to earth and the only connection that he still had with his dead mother. It meant something to him in a similar way to how it means something to us. And through that connection, we were able to meet Peter Quill and start getting into him as a character. And once we did, we learned how much we were interested in him and his friends and his environment and his world and the problems that were going on there. That's how it works well. But so many people don't do that. Because it's quicker and easier just to go, hmm, nostalgia bomb. Oh, here's a trope that you like. Okay, so here we go. Let's just rely on this mythology that you absolutely adore. And it can be a bit hollow and a bit empty. Tomorrow I'm going to be doing, I believe it's tomorrow, I'm going to be doing a review of the book How to Date Your Dragon. Yeah, that's tomorrow. And honestly, I picked the book because I'm wanting to look at modern romance and I like supernatural romances and well, I'm writing a story that has dragons in it. So that is a romance story. So I wanted to see how other people had done it. And so that's how they got me in nostalgia, pure, simple, nostalgia. But these elements, these nostalgic calls to action that pull us towards a thing, they're like non-addictive drugs. <laughs> oh, they're fun. They they get you there. They make you show up. But if that's all that's there, it gets boring rather quickly. I mean, why am I going to stay at a party if I don't like any of the people there? If I don't like the music? If I don't feel like dancing? I'm not going to stay at the party. You can keep offering me all the flashy, beautiful things that you want, but I'm not going to stay. And that's... The problem that a lot of modern fiction has is it relies on the trope, on the nostalgia, on the mythos to pull us in, and then doesn't have anything of its own to share. This has been one of the most infuriating things about Star Trek Picard. Because it's doing that, but it's doing it well. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have been as excited about it if it wasn't a Star Trek series, because I absolutely love Star Trek. Oh, you tell me it's going to have Seven of Nine and John luc Picard in it? Oh, I'm there. I love them. But the way it's using, and I would say abusing, its nostalgia is problematic and something that I hope hope it will grow beyond once it actually gets going with the story that it wants to tell. You can find out more about that in uh, my previous episode, Star Trek and the Death of Nostalgia. But it is important for us to bring these things in and to realize that they're an easy way to attract interest. I know when I was a kid back back in the magical days when there were these things called bookstores and they were everywhere and they were just filled with books that you could read. It was so dirty. You could go in and just walk around and browse, pick them up and touch them. Mm, it was magic. It was the cover. And yeah, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, and I didn't, but it was the cover that got me to pick the book up. Hmm, that cover has a dragon on it. Ooh, that cover has a vampire on it. I like those things. And then I would pick it up, and I would look at it, and then I would read the back cover copy, and I would read a few pages just to see if I was interested, and that's how they got me. And that's how we have to get people today. It's just a lot harder, because, well, there aren't physical bookstores, and there's a lot of... Stories out there. So, how do we stand out? First of all, I think it's very important to state every time I talk about any topic like this that there is no such thing as an original idea. There isn't. And I know there are people that will come at me on that, but there's no such thing as an original idea. Every time you think you've had an original idea, somebody has already done it somewhere. You just probably don't know. Because I thought I had a lot of original ideas and then I got exposed to. A lot of Chinese and Japanese and Korean fiction. Then I realized, hmm, not that original. My very first book that I ever wrote, when I had it at a point where it wasn't quite finished, but I was ready to start letting people see it, I handed it to a teacher of mine who was really a mentor for me. And she read the story and she came back to me and said, oh man, you must be such a a big fan of David Eddings. I went, who's that? Because I had never heard of him and I'd never read any of his work. And so I went down to my local bookstore back when that was a thing. I miss them more than you know. My town doesn't have a bookstore anymore. And I picked up a David Eddings book, and I read it. And I realized that I had basically rewritten this book, even though I had never heard of it. I'd never read it before. I didn't know it existed. But I rewrote it. Completely on my own. Yeah. So... Disabuse yourself of this idea that you're going to come up with something original. Now, you should strive for originality. You should try to make stuff your own. But that's not the same thing as being, you know, truly original. But when you are using nostalgia, when you're using mythology, when you're using various tropes in your fiction, because, well, for for example, I'm working on a romance story right now. And it's going to have to have a happily ever after, because it's not technically romance if it doesn't have a happily ever after. Well, what does that even mean? What is a happily ever after? What does a happily ever after look like for me? You know, somebody who has that gothic sensibility that I've talked about on this podcast a couple times, because, you know, I just don't want everybody holding hands and saying, singing kumbaya at the end and Oh, isn't everything going to be wonderful? Mainly because I know I'm going to be writing at least three books in the series. And the book ends with a cliffhanger. Because it's about the series. I want people to get into the world. So how do I do a happy a happy ever after there? Huh? Well, that's going to be tricky. And that's the point. You know, some of us are masters of subversion. Others are not. And we need to know our place. <laughs> I hate to word it that way, but we really need to know our place because, you know, Lord and Miller are really good at subverting things. They are. They're brilliant at it. And there are quite a few people that are really good at subverting tropes. And then there are a a lot of media that thinks that it is, and it gets really frustrating for me. Like, I haven't watched Westworld since season one because I found it boring because I knew what was going on in the first episode. I predicted the end of it. I watched the entire first season. And it was boring because I could see exactly what they were doing. And maybe that's because I'm a writer and I'm much more in tune with the little subtle hints that you give here, there, and yonder as you're setting things up. But still, it shouldn't be so blindingly obvious that I don't feel like investing myself in it. And you should have given me characters that I cared about along the way. Don't think you're subverting tropes. Don't think you're more clever than you are. To me, this is always a big warning sign when we're working on a story, when we go, oh, that's clever. No, it's not. Stop telling yourself that. (laughs) Just stop. Because we inflate our ego, and that hurts us when we get to editing, and it hurts our creative process, because we start tricking ourselves into thinking that we're creative geniuses. We're not. We're people who tell stories, and while there may be some genius in our story, and maybe some genius comes in and sprinkles the ruby dust on us in the middle of the night, we are not the genius. There may be a genius idea in our story, but that was luck. Pure luck. It was ruby dust. It was fairy dust. It was whatever you want to call it. So be careful blowing yourself up like that, because it takes a lot of work to do any of this well if you want to subvert a trope if you want to do a retelling that's not just you know an elementary school book report it takes a lot of work take wicked for example and i'm talking about the book more than the musical here but it applies to both the brilliance of wicked is asking yourself who exactly is the wicked witch of the west who is she What motivates her? How did she get to be the way that she was? How is she operating in the world? Because in the movie and in the book itself, she's just a villain. She's very thin and has absolutely no characterization. She's a bad person who enslaves people. She enslaved the winged monkeys. She enslaved everybody. And she wanted the shoes because the shoes had power. And that's all she wanted. It was blatant and it was empty. Doesn't mean it wasn't good. It was just blatant and empty. It's a very simple story. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a place for that. But in that gap, in the original story, we get to explore who she is and getting to see the story from her point of view, making Alphaba empathetic, somebody that you can actually recognize and feel sympathy for, feel empathy for, and connect to, changes everything, everything about the story. And thus, the story becomes fresh and original and new. And that's the power of a good retelling. Finding that gap, finding that thing that doesn't really work or doesn't make sense. This is actually one of my favorite things in a lot of Arthurian retellings. Why did Guinevere cheat on On Arthur, they seemed happy. Weren't they happy? That's an interesting gap in the story. And one that's fun to explore. Why did Mordred do all the things that he did? Why was Morgana Le Fay the way that she was? These are gaps in the original stories. And provide amazing venues to play with and explore and allow our imaginations to fly free. They're powerful. And that's how we subvert the tropes. That's how we escape them, really. We find the gaps in them. You know, a lot of the stories that I've been thinking about in the modern day, I've been thinking about writing them in the 90s because, well, the modern day is a garbage fire and I really just don't feel like dealing with it. And I have interesting memories of growing up in the 80s and 90s, and so I've been thinking about moving some of my stories back there. Now, if I were to do that, now it's not just going to help to do the cheap nostalgia. If I just make it what, you know, oh, the nineties, weren't they rad? There's nothing going to be there. But if I think about my experiences and how the music moved me and how the, what culture was like back there and find those gaps that I think I could fill, then it's worth taking the time, energy, and effort to move the story back. move the story into the 90s and play off of some of that nostalgia. Should I do it? I don't know. We'll see. But always look for the gaps because real connection is what will get people to the end of your book and onto the next one. These little tricks of using tropes and nostalgia and mythology and retellings, well, they may get them to pick up your book. They probably won't get them to buy it and they definitely aren't enough to get them to love it. So I hope that helps. And we're going to talk about that a lot more tomorrow when I talk about How to Date Your Dragon, a book that I liked, but that had problems. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed on the show, down in the show notes, you'll find a link to the voice message system. Keep it short, keep it clean so I can use it on the show. I would love to hear from you. If you've got a dollar, you can pass my way. I would love to hear from you. (laughs) In the same show notes, you'll find a link to both the um, listener support and my Patreon. It really does help me keep the lights on. It helps me pay my bills. It helps me buy software. It helps me do everything that I do. And it means the world to me. Thank you to everyone who already does that. If you don't have any money right now or you don't feel like giving, that's perfectly all right. No pressure. But if you know somebody you think would like anything that I do, do share it with them. That helps out more than you will ever know. Alright, I guess that's it. I'm excited about tomorrow because it's been a while since I've done a book review and I don't think I've ever reviewed a romance novel. So, yay! I'm still finding new things to do on the show even after all these episodes. Can you believe it? This is the 957th episode of this podcast? Isn't that crazy? Anywho, Until next time, don't forget to have the fun. Bye.